Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back. There are things I should probably say at the top of the show, things like leave reviews, those really are the best way to help us get more well-known. I mention it as a Patreon and give promises that there really will be more episodes this year than there was last year. So there we go, that's that covered I think. Now there is more of that at the end of the show if you really want to hear it, but for now, let's begin today's story. The Seeker Knight. Ah, to be a knight in those halcyon days of yore, what a pleasure and a delight it was to conduct knightly activities. Sir Guy was one who knew those pleasures well. Pleasures like riding a horse, murdering some foreigners, murdering some peasants, murdering some other knights, occasionally murdering some horses. With lots of tournaments and the wooing of distant ladies in between all that murder. Sir Guy knew much of such frivolities, for in his years of knighthood he had partaken in much of them, and at this moment he dearly wished he was somewhere safe and warm, surrounded by his knightly companions, and getting some good, honest murdering done. But he was not. For, well, for it was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except, as you'll know well, at occasional intervals when it was checked by violent gusts of wind. This was a wild, wet, rugged coast along which Sir Guy rode, and the dim of that cloud-thick night made the path positively perilous in places. To the east of the cliff-top path along which his benighted horse galloped, great and terrible waves rolled and crashed, the roar mingling with the beat of the rain, the rush of the wind, and the occasional sky-splitting crashes of thunder to create an almost deafening elemental cacophony. Flashes of lightning gave split-second bursts of illumination for man and beast, and an opportune vision of some turn just ahead seemed at times to be the only thing that was preventing rider and horse plunging from the clifftop to a watery grave below. Altogether, considered a thoroughly soaked and exhausted Sir Guy, this was not going well. What business exactly the knight had here this evening? Well, I don't know, gentle listener, and it proved to be unimportant. For whatever it was, events were soon to overtake it. But whatever that plan had been, it had certainly not involved risking hyperthermia in the middle of the night on some godforsaken coastal path in the middle of nowhere. Now, if my own experiences of ending up unexpectedly in a cold, wet night could be used as a guide, then we might assume that Sir Guy had simply gone out for just a couple, on a Friday night, and yet since then had seen the inside of several pubs, at least one nightclub, and an establishment called Abracababra, before inexplicably ending up here. But we probably can't use those experiences as a guide. There came another burst of lightning, and in that moment, when the path ahead was dazzlingly lit up, Sir Guy managed to place his eyes on a hill. And atop the hill, was that a building? There were no lights coming from the place, so when darkness returned he could not be sure. But another lightning flash a few minutes later confirmed. Yes, it was a castle, and a large one at that, perched on the high cliff top, a high wall, vast towers and a splendid gatehouse. Aha! Guy's thoughts turned at once to shelter, and he urged his poor horse onward with renewed vigour. As they closed in on their salvation, it became apparent that the glory days of this castle were well behind it. Ruin and decay had set in, and the harsh winds and the wash of the North Sea had begun to take their considerable toll. The absence of any lights at all indicated the structure was almost certain to be deserted. So Guy hoped that, at very least, there was an entranceway where some cover could be found. 
It took some searching, but Guy was a dab hand at searching. Despite the signs of dereliction, all the entrances remained firmly closed and locked great portal doors behind forbidding portcullises. Sir Guy was beginning to despair, but at that moment he spied a roofed porch next to a yew tree. It was with much relief that he tied his horse to that tree and took his own shelter in the unlit porch. At this point, let's take a breather and talk a little about Sir Guy's appearance. Sir Guy was a knight. A K-knight. A Knigget. Now, I'm sure that that word brings to mind a particular image to you. However, knight was just a title, and most times a job, and certainly on a day-to-day basis, all knights were not bedecked ready for a tournament, and I want to disabuse you of any such notion. However, in the case of Sir Guy... Sir Guy really wanted people to know that he was a knight, or so we can assume, given that he was kitted out like a knight who had asked the shop assistant at Knights or Us on Knightsbridge for the most knightliest knight nightwear that they had in that very night. Imagine your stereotypical knight from a child's first fairy tale book, and you won't be far off when it comes to Sir Guy. He had a helm with a big clunky visor and impressive plumage, a gamberson topped with a coat of mail, all of that under a short robe, and on his feet, naturally, metal winkle pickers. A sword was sheathed at his side, and he carried his whimsically painted lance and shield with him at all times. Practical, especially in conditions such as these? Well, it absolutely was not. But even before he bombastically introduced himself, it all marked him out as Sir Guy the Knight. No one would ever say of him, he's just this guy, you know? No, they would say, he's Sir Guy, and he hoped ladies would tremble and possibly faint when they heard his name. But like, tremble and possibly faint in a very good way, if you know what I'm getting at. Oh, Sir Guy. As for men, men he hoped would think of him with admiration for such a fine, upstanding fellow. Or if not that, jealousy would do, as would certain men's anger. Men who are angry at their wicked plans having yet again been thwarted by the intervention of the noble Sir Guy. Curse you, Sir Guy! Non-binary people were kind of so-so about him. And let's be very clear here, as he had to be many times, he's not Sir Guy of Gisborne, the more famous legendary Sir Guy, who he might have developed a bit of a complex about. So that, that's Sir Guy. Sir Guy, who is currently slumped at the back of the castle porch, the sounds of the storm raging all around. He's not doing very much. Absent a phone to flick through, there wasn't really a whole lot to be done. He propped himself up on his impractical lance. Should the rain not die down, he considered that it might well be he was to spend the remainder of the night on this lonely castle-topped cliff. The hours passed. The rain clattered relentlessly on the porch roof. He heard a snatch of sound, some far-distant church bell signifying the midnight hour was upon them. Guy was considering how he could best sleep here as the final muffled toll sounded. But at that moment, there came a tremendous thunderclap as, most improbably, a bolt of lightning descended from the clouds and struck the barred gates by Sir Guy's head, bursting them open in a shower of sparks and a mighty crash. Even the bold Sir Guy was somewhat taken aback, but stillness soon resumed, apart from the rain and the now wide-open gates swinging gently. Tentatively, Guy stepped through them. On the other side of the gates was the castle courtyard, and even in the darkness of night Sir Guy could see clearly that grass and other weeds had broken through the stones and were rewilding the abandoned structure. But what was that? Over there... There was a light, a flickering blue light. 
more specifically, blue flames. With both his curiosity and knightly sense of adventure piqued, Sir Guy headed towards the flame, and as he moved towards it, it moved towards him. Very soon it became apparent that within the blue fire was the head of a man, a towering figure of a man, a giant of a man who somehow was not screaming in pain. No, he remained perfectly calm as flickering flames danced across his bald head and ran up and down his bushy white beard, his whole head encased in one blue flame, a human Bunsen burner. Now, while Sir Guy's outfit was somewhat elaborate, the fire-hooded man's was perhaps even more so. He was wrapped in a great thick robe, and embroidered upon it, embroidered upon it with fire, not thread, was a veritable alphabet soup of arcane sigils, runes, and other symbols that would have made Alistair Crowley proud. Eat your heart out, killstar.com. To add some flourishes, he held in his hand a white-hot wand crafted entirely out of iron, and his loins were girded with a metal chain. Somewhat predictably by this point, the chain glowed red-hot. Sir Guy was certainly taken aback by this development, but he knew that as a knight, this sort of thing came with the territory, and he needed to be able to handle it. Deep breaths, deep breaths... He steadied himself, crossed himself, always a safe move that, and one that might be particularly efficacious when presented with what could very well be a demon, or perhaps not getting ahead of himself here, but perhaps this terrifying figure that he was about to fight could even be the overlord of hell himself. He, Sir Guy, would take down Satan. It was not Satan. And this, gentle listener, this is the first part of today's story that would not look out of place on the cover of some 70s fantasy-inspired metal album. Or, to be more specific, the image could have appeared on the cover of the Heavy Metal magazine, something drawn by Boris Vallejo or Frank Fazetta. If you don't know who those are, then I'd encourage you to find your own reference point for ridiculously over-the-top, luridly coloured fantasy landscapes filled with strange beasts and anatomically unlikely people wearing very little clothing indeed. And from now on, try to imagine the set-piece scenes of this story drawn as so. For me, this certainly seems to be the lens through which this tale is most properly viewed. Anyway, the flaming figure rested his great green eyes upon Sir Guy who met the monstrosity's gaze. The chains clanked, the mighty footsteps echoed. And the man? The man let out a howl, a howl that was more full of pain than it was challenge or threat. At Dunstanborough Castle you have arrived. We shall see this night if you survive. Sir Knight, Sir Knight, if your heart be right and your nerves be firm and true. Sir Knight, Sir Knight, a beauty bright, imprisoned, waits for you. And the awkwardness of those rhymes somewhat tempered the power of the creature's fearsome appearance. Now, Sir Guy didn't know of any beauties imprisoned who might be waiting for him, particularly here at this long-forsaken castle. So he was somewhat confused by the matter, but the spirit or demon or wizard continued to explain the situation. And by explain I mean more that he added, a fair dame was held captive here, and that only the bravest could ever free her. And he really leaned into how beautiful she was, as if that was the key hook. If you don't cast your eyes on her most lovely form... Well, you'll rue it to the day you die. Once in a lifetime opportunity, not to be missed. It was all said in doggerel verse, of course, but we'll skip that bit. So, a tad creepy, but also standard quest stuff. So, are you willing to perform the valiant deed required, Sir Knight? Okay, said Sir Guy, acting pretty cool. If I'm to understand what you're saying right, she's not so much waiting for me as waiting for anyone brave, really. Well, 
yes. I suppose... Look, that's not important, is it? No, said Sir Guy. I I just wanted to be clear. Well, look, I have never known fear. I am not one to back down. I'm a knight, and this quest is surely the bread and butter of knightly duties, and I shall not flinch from it. I accept. Lead me on your quest, Falconhoof. Lead on. And, within an instant of his uttering words of acceptance, the rain stopped falling, the storm hushed, and all was quiet and still in that courtyard, except for the sounds of flickering flames and the various clankings from Sir Guy's armour and the spectre's chain-link belt. Somewhere in the night, an owl screeched out loud as the burning-headed man turned and led. They descended first into passages that led deep underground, a labyrinthine route winding through the earth beneath the castle. Sir Guy followed through twists and turns that he would have no hope in navigating were it not for the living beacon lighting his way. At last there was a door at the end of a passage, and through it they found themselves at the base of a spiral staircase. Up it went the duo. The first flight turned to a small passageway to a second flight, and from some unknown place a bell rang out, solemn and ominous. Brave Sir Guy did not flinch. As they climbed the third flight of stairs, a voice whispered, God's mercy on thy soul. And at the top, at the top there was a massive gate set in the earth. It towered above even the fiery wizard. And that gate? That gate was bolted. Bolted from this side. So, all good there. Just pull the bolt back. But rather than a metal bolt, as is traditional, the makers of this door had used in its place a rather more exotic material. That material was a huge, live snake. What what do you mean? I imagine the player of the fiery wizard's character saying to the dungeon master. It's a snake, repeats the DM. Its teeth are dripping with poison. You mean venom. The DM stops to think, recites. Um, It's poison when you omni-nom. If I bite you, then it be venom, she intones. Yeah, I suppose so. But if you ate it, it'd kill you, so it's both. Sir Guy's player rolls her eyes. Look, whatever it is, wherever it lands on the floor, it lands with a hiss, so you know it's dangerous. And how is it surviving down here? asks Sir Guy's player. It's magic. Look, who's the DM here? Yeah, yeah, that's me, right? So just the snake is there, and it's bolting the door, and I'm going to roll initiative, so what are you going to do? Sir Guy's player pipes up. Okay, well, I'll draw my sword and go to attack. Uh, okay. Well, you walk towards it, but you're struggling with your sword. Can't quite get it out. Snake's turn. Well, the snake's definitely spotted you now, and it is looking pretty pissed off. There's a lot of snake not being used as a bolt, and that bit, that bit's rearing up. It's going to lunge straight towards you. Right. And she turns to the second player. Okay. Your turn. What's your fire wizard dude doing? And we're back in the corridor. The flame-cloaked giant raises his burning staff of iron, and with a flourish he extends it towards the hissing serpent. There were no showy flashes of light or unnecessary sparks. It simply happened that, for a moment, the snake froze. Then its head drooped and fell to the floor, its body following closely and swiftly behind, unwrapping itself from the bolting mechanism with the sound of a fleshy extension cable being wound up at high speed. Sir Guy, who had been within literal spitting distance, breathed a sigh of relief. As he did so, the gate in front of them, which had been previously held closed by its now quite dead Ophidian sentry, began to open slowly swinging inwards on its hinges with an awful, echoey, grating noise. Sir Guy's companion indicated that they should press onwards. Stepping over the corpse of the snake, they cautiously entered the room that opened up in front of them. 
though room is really too humble a word for that place. It was a vast, spacious hall into which they stepped. So Guy had lost all sense of where he was in relation to the castle, but it was clear that despite having ascended several flights of stairs, they must still be deep, deep underground for such a space to be contained within it. Their footsteps echoed on the marble floor, which was all black and white slabs stretching away into the darkness, looking like the bathroom of some nouveau riche fairy tale giant. As they encroached further, there was a sudden whoosh of flame as a hundred torches leapt into life. The sudden glorious burst of light revealed the wonders and horrors of the rest of the room. The eyes were drawn first to the bright gold and bronze of the vaulted ceiling far above. But as swiftly as that could be taken in, one's gaze was redirected to the more impressive and frankly concerning sight of a hundred Vanta black horses standing in rows, stock still. Not the guy knew there was a hundred, he didn't count them all. And next to each horse, sleeping peacefully on the ground, lay a knight. A knight who, in contrast to his mount, was clad in shining bright white which would have aced the Daz doorstep challenge. Neither men nor beasts had stirred at the lighting of the torches. The torches that Sir Guy suddenly couldn't help noticing were not of your regular kind. Well no, actually the torches were, but their holders. No simple, efficient metal bracket for these. Surely the same insane craftsman who had devised the snake bolt had been at work here. For each torch was held in a hand, a hand at the end of a severed arm. And where arms met wall, blood dripped down in thick, gory globules in a spirited defiance of the laws of biology, physics and interior design. They bled as though the limbs had been lopped off just a moment before. And yet Sir Guy knew, through some nightly intuition, that this place had been undisturbed for many a year, perhaps even centuries. Having taken all that in, Guy could just make something out down the far end of the room. His companion strode onwards towards it, passing by the ranks of sleeping knights, the immobile horses and the limb torches. Guy followed. And now, listeners, just in case I haven't emphasised this enough, this is the scene that makes its way onto the poster on the dorm wall of our prog-rock-loving Dungeons & Dragons playing student in the 1970s. Our knight and his fiery companion find themselves standing in front of a large, upright tomb made of no lesser substance than crystal, the torchlight reflecting refracting, a dazzling array of colours playing on the walls all around it. And flanking this impressive tomb are two skeletons, standing tall and upright. And these are not usual human skeletons. These are full-on Home Depot Halloween skeletons. Yes, I might live in the UK, but thanks to the wonders of the internet, I know that 12-foot Home Depot skeletons were pretty much the only good thing to come out of 2020. And those were these. Towering giants, wearing crowns of black jet encrusted with jewels. And these Home Depot skeletons were posed in a very particular manner. One hand of each pointed a bony finger to the tomb and in the other hand, they held an object. One skeleton had a sword grasped, a sword that seemed to shine and shimmer, while the skeleton's post-mortem comrade held a war horn of prestigious size and beauty. Following the outstretched skeletal fingers back to the tomb, Sir Guy can make something out within the sepulchral crystal. The woman, with everything that had happened he'd almost forgotten, But here she was, as promised, some top totty, imprisoned. That's why he was here, after all. And despite the distortion of the image through the crystal, he could tell that she was, as promised, breathtakingly beautiful. Like many male heterosexual knights, he spent far too long without the company of women, 
and now he had lain eyes on this one for an instant. He longed for her dearly as soon as he set eyes upon her. No, it was more than that. He was in love. And so engrossed in studying her form was the lustful night that it took him longer than was seemly to notice that, unlike everything else they'd encountered in that silent place, she was neither dead nor sleeping. When Sir Guy's gaze eventually made its way upwards to her face, he saw that her eyes were open and their gazes met. Her lips moved, though the word she said could not be heard through the barrier, and she reached out to Guy, pleadingly. Finally, after all this time, someone had come to rescue her. Don't worry, I'll get you out, said Sir Guy, reaching for a weapon. And at this point, up spake the wizard. All the armies of the world united would fail to dent that crystalline wall. Sir Guy paused. It was made by no human, but rather by one of the arch-fiends of hell. Maybe the one that looks like a little cute owl, Stolas, or that one riding a crocodile. It's not specified, anyway. But they say that at the birth of that creature, Satan himself recoiled. Such was its hideousness. And on that night the earth shook, and blood and chunks of flesh rained down upon the mortal world. It is his doing that we see here. Sir Guy digested that. Woman held captive by a demon in an unbreakable prison. Figures. Okay, well, who is she? And if I can't break it, then what can be done? I'll answer your second question, but not the first. For this is a time of action, not further exposition. To save her, you must make a choice. And at that, the wizard indicated first one skeleton and then the other. See these two dead giants of yore. See what they hold. A sword in this one's hand. The finest, sharpest, most deadly and beautiful sword that you shall ever see. And this one grasps a horn. A horn not just crafted from the finest ivory, but with a long and noble history. For this horn once belonged to none other than Merlin himself. And so how precisely does the sword or the horn help? That's not important. Just know that you must make the choice. Horn or sword. One will free her. The other? Well... Sir Guy considered the conundrum, somewhat perplexed. Very aware of the pleading prisoner separated from them by the translucent crystal walls. Well, how does this work, exactly? Do you know? Aren't you on my side? Which would you pick? The fiery wizard, who'd been so commanding, so terrifying, looked downcast. And while he remained hooded in crackling flames, they appeared to lose some of their fury, to dim a little. I cannot help. I am unable. A sneaky hint, perhaps? Raise an eyebrow? If I walk to this one, do a cough if it's right. Major Ingram style, you know? I cannot... I'm sorry, it must be the brave one who makes the decision. He seemed pretty set on that. Right, damn. Sir Guy had been all prepared to bring the full power of his martial prowess to bear on whatever evil they found, and so by strength of arms vanquish his foe. That was how this was meant to go. Not this strange parlour game. There seemed no immediate danger, but he didn't want to dawdle. He paced back and forth, pondered. There was no sense to either of them, no indication of how either object would lead to the woman's freedom. As he considered, all around him the hundred obsidian horses remained motionless. The white-clad knights still slept beside them. The cavernous eye stockets of the giant skeletons stared blankly ahead. Right, right, think... So, how did any of this happen? What could it mean? A demon placed her here, and why a sword and a horn? A sword, a horn to blow to summon aid, and a sword to fight something, but not the crystal. Why can't I take both? Hmm, sword and horn. Hang on, is that a male-female genitalia thing? No, no, that's stupid. All the while, the prisoner still pleaded. 
begged him from within her tomb. Right, enough of this. There was no way to know. He was just going to have to go for it. He was a man of action. So he took action. Sir Guy reached to the handle of the glowing sword, brushing his fingers against those mighty phalanges as he did so. As soon as he laid a hand upon the hilt, there came a cry of fear and doubt from within himself. You're wrong. And as quickly as he'd reached out, he snatched his hand back. And again he found himself mired in indecision. This was so important, but how could he know? But that had felt wrong. Right, well if it's not going to be the sword, then it's the horn. And with an artificial certainty manufactured from necessity, Sir Guy strode to the other skeleton, took up the horn from its outstretched hand, and in one smooth motion brought it to his lips, took a deep breath, and with all his might blew into it, strong and true. He was rewarded with a rich, sonorous sound that filled the hall, reverberating like thunder. For a fraction of an instant, everything was silent. And then, one of the night-black horses shook its head, snorted and stamped a hoof against the marble. The noise rang out clear, before being caught up in the cacophony of a hundred horses springing to life and the knights beside them rising. They showed no sign of long, drawn-out waking up like you or I might. You know, realising the horn might not go off again, turning over for just a few moments more, trying to recall what happened in that dream, rubbing the sleep from their eyes. No, they snapped back into full wakefulness as if the whole sleeping thing had been an elaborate ruse all along. And each and every one of them was up and had set their eyes upon Sir Guy, horn still in hand. Sir Guy would have liked to have had a moment in which he could have pretended they might be going to help. But the fury in their faces, followed by the drawing of swords, well, that put paid to any such delusion. And the knights charged. Now Sir Guy knew what to do. He tossed aside the horn and went to draw his own sword. Battle, he understood. And as a heroic knight of legend, well, he pretty much faced impossible odds six times before breakfast. This was nothing new. Bring it. But it was not to be. For as the discarded horn of Merlin hit the floor, there came a terrible scream of such supernatural origin and such wretched agony that Sir Guy knew at once that it could be nothing more than the shriek of some poor, tormented soul trapped in the very bowels of hell itself. The flames of the horrible torches around the hall were extinguished as suddenly as they'd previously leapt to life. The room was plunged into pitch darkness, excepting for the fire which engulfed the head of the wizard. The fire which had not only regained its former glory, but burned brighter and fiercer than ever before. Blood tinged the edges of the flames. It was with an inferno of rage worthy of Ozai himself that the wizard turned to Sir Guy, eyes blazing, and he roared. Shame on the coward who sounded a horn when he might have unsheathed a sword. Now, this assessment of Sir Guy's performance might seem to you, as it does to me, to be fundamentally unfair. No cowardice was involved here. He was simply given a choice with no obvious wrong or right answer to it, and for either one to be wrong or right would have made about as much sense. Something we'll return to later. However, none of this helped the wizard, the woman, or Sir Guy. Meanwhile, Sir Guy, now plunged into darkness, was like most British people after daylight savings time ends, was very aware that the knights were drawing in. As Guy swung his sword around desperately, the wizard's mouth opened and from it issued a blue vapour which swiftly enveloped our hero, as if he didn't have enough to contend with already. And this proved too much for him. His head went light, he found himself falling to the floor, and everything went black. Thank you.
Now, if you were expecting that to be the end of Sir Guy, well, that makes two of us. And despite his indomitable courage, even the man himself probably had some doubt as he slipped into unconsciousness. But it was not the end of him. Sir Guy awoke. Unlike the white-clad knights, he did not do so easily. He was groggy, confused, aching all over. And he's back in the porch, and it's morning. The storm of the previous night has passed, and while the ground is still wet from it, the sky is bright and beautiful. The vast ocean is calm. Birds sing and flit about. It was a morning of the kind that in the right circumstances could herald a new beginning, a renewal. But for Sir Guy, this was no hopeful omen. Etched at the forefront of his mind was the pleading look of the woman entombed in the crystal. He scrambled up. His horse was still nearby, tied up beneath the great yew tree. He could leave. If he was the sort, then Sir Guy might have begun to wonder if it had all been a particularly lucid dream. It would certainly be easier if that were the case. It would be easier for himself if Guy at least pretended as much, even if he knew within his heart of hearts that it was not so. But the memory of her forbade any such course of action. The gate that had been so improbably burst open by the lightning stood open still, and, tentatively at first... Sir Guy once again entered the castle ruins. That tunnel the wizard had led him to. It had to be around here somewhere. He could find it. Now, the wizard had been standing here. So that means they'd gone this way, and then that way, and so a few steps here, and it... No, that's just a wall. Okay, right, well, let's go back to the start then. It wasn't a completely uninhabited area of the country, this. Little coastal fishing villages and farms lay nearby, and so there were locals. They found Sir Guy single-mindedly searching for that cavern again. The cavern he knew to be under this castle. The possessions he had with him, his fine weapons, clothes, jewels he carried, his mount even, well, they were worth a great deal. And so Sagai was able to sustain himself for quite some time, slowly trading away all his knightly goods in return for the essentials of life, so that he could continue his search undistracted. Sagai the Seeker, they came to calling him. Sometimes he would start at that porch and try to explore the ruins. Other times he would approach the castle from different directions, looking for another way in. Dig down even, hoping to find some buried corridor. Other times still he'd approach it in a boat by sea, and then dive down to the cliffs to see if there was a way he could swim in that way. He'd ask Bobby Dylan, he'd even ask the Beatles, but none of it helped. The entrance seemed not to be there to be found. His seeking was all in vain. But he didn't stop. When even his fine horse was gone, he persisted still, through the kindness of the locals, the kindness to this man who, in searching, had clearly lost his mind. Repeating over and over to himself, must find the sword, must find the sword, must... it was the sword. And then he'd issue a terrible groan, a groan that all the villagers got to know very well. When the groan echoed across the clifftops, they'd say to each other, Sir Guy, groaning for that sword. He'd search in the howling wind and the lashing rain, in the sweltering summer days and in the snows of winter. Oft times he'd wait until midnight, torch in hand, willing that wizard to again appear. But he never did. When he blew the horn, Sir Guy had blown his chances right along with it. And that was it for Sir Guy the Seeker. Oh, he lived like that for another 20 years or so. But there's nothing more to note of his life than what I have just described. He passed away at the castle one day, doing what he did best, seeking, never finding. And that was that. Now there are some say that he searches still after death. Perhaps his spectral intangibility might help him in that search. He could just sink into the ground and find the cavern that way. 
In any case, the ghostly Sir Guy must share the castle ruins with other more famous ghosts. Margaret of Anjou, the former Queen of England. Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, who, like a great big cliché, carries his head around under his arm. And there's probably a scout leader shot through the neck with an arrow by this point. But of Sir Guy, at least we know this much, this story. Of the woman, of the object of his search. Of her? We know nothing at all. Not her name. Not why she is imprisoned. But some say that she waits there still. Until the right person comes along and finally frees her. You can visit Dunstanborough Castle today. It's a lovely walk along the cliffs. And I've told you which choice to make now. Are you brave enough? Well, maybe you could do it. And if by chance you can't find her, then just remember, enjoy your day out, but leave it there, admit defeat, and go home. Otherwise, you might be like Sagai, searching for her for 20 years or more. That's the end of the story. You may be thinking, ooh, that was a bit short. But don't you worry, because I hope you enjoyed that. But before we launch into the discussion section proper, I'm going to break protocol and do something really quite irregular. I'm going to tell you another story. Now, don't reach for that pause button right now, or, well, do if you want. I'll keep it quite short and to the point, I promise. And I want to tell you it to help with the discussion you might find some beats a tad familiar. From the North Sea coast where we were, the narrative camera flies inland. And well, not that far actually, about 50 or so miles southwest. Still in the county of Northumberland, but many centuries later. The world of night has long since disappeared. But we do find ourselves again in a lonely, sparsely inhabited area of the country. Here is the slightly peculiarly named Sewing Shields. From Sewing Shields Crag can be seen beautiful views of the Northumberland countryside. But the place is more famed for being the site of one of the remaining mile castles along Hadrian's Wall, which itself runs up and over the crag before continuing onwards. Hadrian's Wall, a breathtaking Roman-built structure nearly 2,000 years old, bisects England, running from Cumbria in the west to Tyne and Weir in the east. And well, that's something to talk about another day, for it doesn't directly concern us here. But it's on the ruins of the Mile Castle that our protagonist sits, on a pleasantly warm summer's day. This Mile Castle is in no way comparable to the grand ruins of Dunstanborough. Castle is really too great a term. Even in its prime it was a modest size, a large guardhouse really. And now it's quite thoroughly worn down and is just some flattened piles of stones where once were mighty walls. It's the end of the 18th century and our protagonist, just a farmer or possibly a shepherd him, not rich nor battle-hardened, well, our farmer is knitting as he sits. Relaxing work. But then, oh blast, the ball of yarn falls and rolls away. He's a second too late to catch it, and it's off, rolling into the grass and down amongst the briars and nettles. He's up and after it in an instant, but when he comes to the spot it should be resting. Well, fancy that. It ain't here. He kicks weeds away with his boots, and sees a gap. A small hole leading into the earth. No. That's not right. He clears away more, gets some of his tools, makes a proper job of it. It's not so much a small hole at all as a bigger hole, slightly filled with debris. And now, on one hand, he's definitely looking for the lost ball of yarn. But at the back of his mind, there's a half-remembered story from his childhood. This couldn't be, could it? Well, he worked and he worked, and when the tangled knots of roots and stems and branches had been hacked back and the debris all cleared away, it revealed an entranceway of a fairly sizeable passage, clearly cut into the cliff. No rabbit or badger burrow this. This was made by the hand of man, but untouched for an age. 
The dropped ball had left a yarn trail as it passed. He could follow that now, he supposed, though he had but the light of a pipe. He told himself he'd go a little way. And so, into the hill he went. And not far in at all, he made out a light in the distance. An exit, perhaps? It gave him enough confidence to press on anyway. And he kept going as lizards scrambled around him, as he heard the croaking of toads, and even as bats, disturbed as they were by his passing, flitted around him and beat their wing, their wing beats filling the air. A shepherd he may be, but he did not lack courage for that. All the while the light got brighter, the passage wider and more firm underfoot and it became readily apparent that this was not the light of day. No, this was a flame. This had to be it, from the story. He couldn't leave now. He was rushing along now, almost running, and finally he burst into the hall with a fire that burned bright and hot in the centre and without any obvious source of fuel. And yes, this was it. He'd found them. He looked around, wide-eyed in astonishment. The chamber was filled with ornate thrones and those Roman chaise longs, and on each seat was a person, a person sleeping. And not just any person, but figures instantly recognisable by the style of their clothes and armour, by the images that graced the shields that rested by their sides. Lords and ladies, knights and damsels, and on the two greatest thrones slumbered the unmistakable forms of Guinevere and King Arthur. I'm not quite sure where Lancelot was here, but boy, that could get awkward. Now in the room there was a table, and on the table were three objects. A horn, yep, a garter, a bit different, and a sword. He scoured his memory for the old stories. Right, okay. He still couldn't believe it. Buzzing with excitement, he drew the sword from the scabbard. Yes, that was right. Eyes began to open as he slid it out. It was working. He remembered the next bit. He took the sword, and with one swift motion, he cut the garter. And at that, the figures began to rise. The pack of hounds that lay around the fire, they began to stir. He'd done it. King Arthur was back. And whoever woke him would be rewarded most handsomely, the legends were very clear about that. The shepherd slid the sword back into its scabbard triumphantly. And the men and the dogs immediately slumped down as if they were dropped marionettes. All except for the legendary monarch himself, who seemed to suffer a blow and began to sink down, but managed to direct the following words to the unlucky farmer first. Oh, woe betide that evil day on which this witless wight was born, who drew the sword, the garter cut, but never blew the bugle horn. And then Arthur, too, slumped back into rest. He should have blown the horn before putting the sword back. Damn! The cavern began to shake ominously. The farmer needed no hints. He turned and he ran, and as he did so, the tunnel collapsed in behind him. And despite much searching later, and much digging even, Arthur and his knights were never again to be found at Sewing Shields. Okay, so, two stories for the price of one, you lucky things. And I think my reason for telling that is fairly self-explanatory. In that story, the man had to blow the horn, and it was his failure to do so that caused things to go wrong for him. In Sir Guy's case, well, he had to not blow the horn. Basically, there's no logic to it, and you can't really win. Now, we've got a lot to talk about here, potentially. 
Let's kick off with my impressions of the story. As might be apparent, I like this story a lot. Now, compared to other tales I've told here, it is very simple. No casts of characters to remember, no tricky motivations or subplots to keep track of. I am well aware that a fair accusation that could be levelled against this podcast generally is spinning out stories with lots of unnecessary tangents and explorations of themes that take a very simple tale and stretch the poor thing over far more than it really has content for. Sometimes I might be tempted to dispute that, but here, taking more than half an hour to tell this simple walk down a corridor, take your pick horn or sword, pick wrong, then you're left searching forever, well, it does feel a tad too much. And originally I had this to be told as part of a set of stories on the same theme, like the one that I added at the end there. But in the end, the repetition in them made me think this was a poor idea, so I decided to draw out this one a little. Firstly, because I visited Dunstanborough in the precious couple of months one could leave the county in 2020, but more because I was drawn to the outlandish embellishments in this particular story. The skeletons, the snake, the fiery wizard, the woman, presumably scantily clad. They're just epic, silly elements. Okay, I'm going to level with you. That person who would have stuck a poster like this on their university bedroom wall... That person is me. I know. Shock, yeah? You hadn't worked that one out? Now, I might not have been alive in the 70s, but hell, if it was this actual story, I might even do it today. The more over-the-top, ridiculously and luridly colourful, the better. There aren't that many places where the imagery of modern fantasy, especially in its most egregious forms, like D&D monster manuals, overlaps so much with the folkloric. And I love it despite the horn-sword thing not making a great deal of sense. But now I've got a slight confession to make, because all those bits that I love, well, they're probably not, I mean definitely not, in any original folkloric tale about this. Let's quote the Denim Tracts on the subject, which somewhat sniffily, but totally accurately, says, Quote, The correct legend about Dunstanborough Castle tells that its chieftain was charmed with his hounds, his sword and bugle horn, and enclosed in one of the vaults of that ancient fortress, the adjuncts of Monk Lewis being imaginary. So let's talk about this kind of legend first, and Monk, inverted commas, Lewis, second. So this story is one of a recognised type, a type that is much more recognisable in the Sewing Shield version. In this type of a story, usually what you've got is a sleeper, buried in some cavern somewhere, often with attendants, awaiting to be woken. We have such a story from Brickburn Priory, which is also in Northumberland, also from Richmond Castle. There you can either draw or blow the horn, That would have both worked, but the man who discovered them was too scared to do either. There's another variant from Alderley Edge in Cheshire. In that one there's no horn, but a very similar theme about a sleeping King Arthur. You get the idea. But this type of story comes from far further afield than that. Depending on how wide you want to cast the net, it crops up all over the place. A king or warlord and his retinue are not dead, but sleeping, ready to be awoken often to save the country. In Germany, and possibly the most famous variant, Frederick Barbarossa sleeps under Keufhauser Mountain, his beard so long that it's grown through the stone table at which he sits. In Denmark, Ogier the Dane rests under Kromborg Castle to emerge fighting when the country is in its greatest peril. In Switzerland, it's the Free Tells, and in France, it's Charlemagne, and so on and so forth. Now, Lots of these stories, probably including many of the King Arthur's, are reasonably modern inventions, that is, a couple of hundred years old or so, and they're all copied from the other variants fairly straightforwardly. In the 19th century, there was a very strong link between certain types of folklore and the idea of nations, and it seems that having your own immortal, just-resting national hero who would sally forth at the appropriate hour was considered a pretty standard requirement if you wanted to have a nation. But if we look wider still, 
on Thompson, which is a classification of folk stories, which I've talked a little bit about before, and which has its uses and less useful bits, well, that has a set of tales which are referred to as the Seven Sleepers, into which these would fit. The Seven, in this case, refers to the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus, which was a very popular and geographically and culturally widespread medieval tale. The sleepers in this case were seven Christians sealed in a cave by bad pagan Romans in about 200 CE, only to emerge from their rest a couple of hundred years later, suffering no ill effects, when Rome was Christian and good. If you want to take it even further, there are cultural heroes from outside European mythology who are sleeping, waiting to return. Some of these I feel are a bit of a stretch, but one that tracks a bit more closely is world conqueror Genghis Khan. The location of his tomb is very famously unknown, but while he is considered to be more kind of dead, he is also meant to arise again at some point and lead Mongolia back to its former glory. Now, at least one very old account might be a precursor to this story, or it could just coincidentally cover similar-ish themes. But anyway, let's go to the writings of Plutarch. Plutarch was a Roman Greek who wrote in the 1st and 2nd centuries CE, so nigh on 2,000 years ago. He says that to the west of Britain, or probably Britain anyway, but to the west of Britain, Kronos, who is the leader of the Titans, who were the forerunners of the gods in Greek mythology, well, Kronos sleeps confined in a deep cave of rock that shines like gold. There he is tended by spirits that were his companions in life. Now that's not exactly the same, but it does suggest that perhaps this story has very early origins indeed. Perhaps there will come a day when all these heroes awake together, burst out of their subterranean dormitories and lead their respective peoples in mighty and bloody battles across the earth for causes that are long since defunct. Won't that be glorious? Now, the observant amongst you will have noticed that while there are certain similarities with this Sleeping King legend I've been rattling on about, the story of Sir Guy is actually quite different in a few fairly crucial ways, quite aside from him not having to blow the horn. Firstly, the sleepers here aren't some great hero and his attendants, or army. No, almost the opposite in fact. While there are knights here, they're clearly the bad guys, and not waking them is very much the objective. And then, of course, there's the female to rescue who is the object, and doesn't crop up elsewhere. Now, damsels in distress are a pretty overused trope of chivalric literature, its imitators and its forebearers, but don't crop up elsewhere in this King Under the Mountain story. So where do these elements, and the snake, etc. come from? And this is where we circle back round to the aforementioned Monk Lewis, whose adjuncts, according to Denham, were imaginary. Matthew Gregory Lewis, which was his given name, was an English MP, but more Pertinently, he was one of the principal founders of the genre of Gothic literature. His monk appellation refers to the work of that name, which is pretty much considered a foundational text of Gothic literature. The monk is perhaps not the most easily engaged with novels of that genre for the modern reader. I have read it and it does have some interesting bits. I don't have time to describe the quite twisting plot here, but basically evil monk and some evil nuns thrown in for good measure. Anyway, that book had rave reviews and really helped cement gothic. And why am I talking about him? Well, the version of the Sir Guy the Seeker story I've just told is pretty much taken from an 1808 poem version written by the aforementioned Matthew Gregory Lewis. And absolutely lots of the changes to the usual King in the Mountain therefore probably come directly from his pen. Anyway, the fame of those poems, particularly Lewis's, mean that where this tale does crop up later, and I'm thinking of local guidebooks and internet summaries of the legends of Dunstanborough Castle, for instance, well, in those, the story is repeated where Sir Guy is trying to rescue the trapped woman, and he isn't meant to blow the horn. 
I've not been able to find a complete record of the original story, though it was probably very close to the Sewing Shields version. But for most intents and purposes, the story of Dunstanbury Castle is now the story of Sir Guy the Seeker. And that's why I wanted to tell it here. And it is my podcast after all. But I hope you're okay with that. Now, I can't leave this off without discussing another variant of the legend that is a bit different again. This variant comes from Tyne and Weir, which in the grand scheme of things is not really too far from Dunstanborough, so the two legends could easily have influenced one another. This one is either called, simply, The Wizard's Cave, or the moniker I far prefer to use, Jingling Geordie's Hole. And yes, I cannot say that without wanting to give a puerile snicker. Jingling Geordie's Hole. If there's not a gay club in Newcastle called that, well... Frankly, someone missed an opportunity. Anyway, the most well-known story featuring Jingling Geordie's Hole talks about a protagonist called Sir Walter, and he has to fight off various demonic foes, which he does so. And then there is a horn that he has to blow, but in this case there's no one to wake. Rather, blowing the horn grants him access to a great treasure hoard which he takes and goes on to lead a life of Riley. Fair enough, another story I probably could have spun out to an hour if I wanted. But it's not that that most interests me at this location. No, what most interests me is that here there is a mention of a damsel being held. But not quite in the way you might expect. The mention comes from a bill, an advertisement that was posted in the town of North Shields in 1819. And it reads as so. Quote, the public are respectfully informed that Sir Abdahalla will, on Easter Tuesday, April 13th, 1819, display from his magical chair the whole enchanted secret of Jingling Man's Hole. He will, before sunset, astonish every beholder by producing, by way of three waves of his magic wand, the long-heard-of chest at the mouth of the cave. By a second three waves of his wand, he will produce the lady that has been confined there since the reign of Severus, the Roman Emperor. By a third movement, he will command them from whence they came. Peace officers will attend to preserve tranquillity. End quote. Now apparently, Sir Abdahalla and his magic chair were a no-show, and the many people who had assembled were greatly disappointed. Whether tranquillity was preserved in these circumstances isn't made clear. Chances for entertainment were, of course, few and far between back then, though I'd probably be one of the ones who turn up all hopeful today. Okay, so, I was going to go into a bit of history of Dunstanborough Castle now, the part that it played in the War of the Roses, constructed as it was in the 1300s, under the instructions of Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, one of the key players in that conflict. I ended up reading lots about him and his dislike of Edward II and Edward II's, air quotes, favourites. It's a fascinating period of English, Scottish and French history. But I think I may have already overstayed my welcome in this particular inexpert discussion section. So we'll leave that there. I will say that Dunstanmer Castle really is a pretty enchanting place and a lovely gentle walk along the coast if you wanted to visit. And so, a couple of things to finish off with. Firstly, once again, a heartfelt thank you to everyone who has joined me on Patreon. There really is another members episode coming soon, I promise. So for anyone thinking about joining up but worried because I don't exactly put out very much very frequently, please do be reassured that I only take donations when I actually release a members episode, which hasn't happened as much as I'd have liked, though there is one in the bag. Thanks to everyone who's signed up since the last episode. And that is Emily DeBorn, Claire Hamilton, Ellen, Jacqueline Black, Jodie Griffin, Helen, Catherine Eckersall, Hi, Liz Tess of Wimbus, Francine Buckner and Laurie Meeker. Thank you all so much. Thanks as well to everyone who's listened, commented, reviewed. Well, definitely not very child-friendly story featuring class warfare and incel and generally some very dark themes. So that'll be nice. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. 
The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.